Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is supported by Squarespace, Movement Watches, ZipRecruiter, and The Great Courses Plus. Hey folks, we're back. We wanted to take a moment to say thank you for all of the positive feedback and support you've been giving us online at Patreon, Facebook, Twitter, and in our inbox. There's a lot coming in now, and we're finally at the point where we can't respond to everything. But know that we do read it all, and we really do appreciate it. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The beast grabbed my ankle tightly, but I managed to slip away from his fingers that were turning into longer, more strong nails or paws of some sort. Linda Godfrey sharing the story of the Torrance Werewolf from her book, Monsters Among Us. Join us tonight for an interview with author Linda Godfrey and ensuing discussion about many of the stories from her new book. Okay, so we're back after a brief trip to Hard Island last week. We've been very fortunate to be able to sit down this week with a renowned expert on unusual events, including, but not limited, to Wolfmen. She has a new book coming out on October 11th called Monsters Among Us, an exploration of otherworldly Bigfoots, Wolfmen, portals, phantoms, and odd phenomena. I have to thank her right off the bat for filling me in on the plural of Bigfoot. Big, <laughs> no, big feet is that's uh, yeah, just a, a description wanna, of feet. I always want to say big feet. Big, well, the big feet. Plural, I say Sasquatch. Yeah. That kind of covers that. Or up north, they call it the Squatch. Go yeah. Squatching. Yeah. Yeah. But what if you have more than one? You say Squatches? No, no, Squatching. Squatching yeah, is an activity. Saw, but that's not a description no, of an amount of big feet. It covers it. I saw a Sasquatch. I could be one, could be many, in my view anyway. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not aligned with your view. <laughs> Where I saw a Bigfoot, but she says Bigfoots. Bigfoots, yeah. And All I guarantee right. you she looked it up because I read her book. She's very <laughs> thorough. <laughs> no, no. She is an investigative reporter. That's how she got her start in southern Wisconsin area, right? Yes, exactly. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. And here's the main thing that came to me after reading her book. The werewolf and dogman thing, it's not the only thing in her book, but there is a fair amount of that. It's a lot more prevalent. I mean, just before we started the Skinwalker Ranch series yeah. a, a month or two ago, I was not really thinking that was a high level of activity, especially in North America. But now I'm feeling like it's a lot more prevalent than it seems. It seems like it's bubbling a little bit more than I thought it was under the surface of paranormal stories. Yeah, I would attribute that to the way that these stories emerge and are reported. It's very localized kind of phenomenon, as well as the reporting. And America is a very large country. So you might know things about the areas you grew up in. If you're from Ohio, you probably heard of the Ohio Grassman, Northern Michigan, the Dogman. Yeah. People don't often share this. Now, we've come across that as well, because there are some brave individuals who will go on camera and, and be interviewed on the news and a lot of people just think they're nutcases, regardless of how sound they are, even if they don't know them. People don't really want to readily report these things, or it's not taken very seriously by the media. And if it is, every time you see maybe a strange lights phenomenon, they play the X-Files theme on the local news. Oh, yeah. Or theremin music, which I do enjoy, but it's just kind of silly. Yeah. And that lends to the idea that people were mistaken. They didn't know what they saw or can't categorize it. So they just lump it together as kind of an odd human interest story, which it kind of is. 
you're not going to hear about the Ohio grass mound all over the U.S. generally, unless you're into this kind of stuff. The more that I got into these kind of stories that Linda relays in her book, this is skinwalker territory, man. The way that these are described, it fits totally into the skinwalker kind of mythos. Now, maybe not in the original Native American lore sense, but America is Native American country. So that Native American lore is not specific to the Southwest or just to the Utes or the Navajo, the Diné. It's all over. And again, not that it's tied in here, but it's really interesting that what's being described here, these encounters, these sightings by non-Native Americans is just the sightings without the Native American lore attached to it. But, that's but the right. same and descriptions. Wanna, and I want to talk about that. The other thing that's become abundantly clear to me is that bipedal, half-human, half-canine creatures love to smoke. <laughs> well, they, <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, they, we know they like to smoke, they enjoy themselves, they like to travel fast, and they still have to eat, which is a curious thing. I think I have another, the last half of Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was, You're still... I, I save them like little bits of delicious candy, but... That creature there, this interdimensional no beast, will just say that it's viewed as some kind of an animal. And I started thinking about Alien, the movie. Yeah. That's the way the crew, how are we going to handle this thing? How do we kill it? Well, it's an animal. Animals are afraid of fire. It's probably the best thing is I would have taken a flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> whatever walked up to the Shermans on their ranch. But also, no, these fire are, in the desert, not always the best no, thing. No, probably not. Probably <laughs> not. But these all have a natural animalistic element to them as supernatural as some of these encounters may seem to be. It's funny you should say that because on the supernatural side, it's the wolves and then also the invisible predators. Speaking of predator, by the way, the the description of that kind of cloaking image keeps coming up in people's accounts. And I still don't know how this all works. I can't figure out if it's because these things are only partially here or they're part of some intersection between universes or worlds. It's hard to figure out. But I am seeing common threads between not only Linda's book, Monsters Among Us, and also Hunt for the Skinwalker, but other stories that we're finding outside the context of both of those books as well. Well, also Ryan Skinner in his book That's uh, right. about Skinwalker Ranch describes an encounter, not generally in the same area, but he and his wife at the time were driving in their car and had a very strange encounter with, we'll say, kind of beings that had that shimmery kind of appearance, not totally visible. Right. And also had some kind of suit or helmets or tubes <laughs> coming out of their, their There's costumes. always tubes. No matter wh- where you're from, you gotta, you gotta breathe air. So at least here or whatever you breathe on your planet or dimension. So, <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. you have to bring it in a can you gotta, <laughs> and breathe it through a hose. No, I go back to that same thing that, you know, whatever's over there, they bring their scientist over here to study us. The guy sitting at his desk, failing out a boring report, but he's yeah. got a helmet and tubes coming out of it and, yeah. and, and leaving the weird boot prints outside of the research trailer that he was in. His that inter- kind of floats. Interdimensional <laughs> RV. Yeah. It, it, you know, <laughs> that's his job. He's like, oh man, these guys have discovered me. I got to move the, uh, yeah. the blind back and then eventually take he's off. He's always like, when do I get my stapler? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, look, all we have are these people's accounts. As we've seen with the Skinwalker series, my conclusion is that these things are very hard to study, even when you have the right gear and the knowledge and the skills to do so from a scientific standpoint. That's definitely going to come up in the interview tonight. It was actually super fun to get an advanced copy of this book, although my copy got delayed in the mail And I only got it the day before I was set to interview Linda. So fortunately, due to the rapid turnaround of new episodes that we're frequently exposed to and being experts in cursory research, I was able to read Monsters Among Us, every word of it, not skimming, 
in the day that I had it. And I got to say, it was pretty easy because I honestly couldn't put it down. It was just oh, right up our alley. I love books like this because they are a great collection of people's strange encounters. Yeah. You know, told with a great description and good documentation by Linda and an enjoyable read. You want to get a few strange stories in here and there and not lose uh, track with an entire narrative that takes up the whole book. This is a great book for that. That is what's really good about it. And in contrast to Hunt for the Skinwalker, her stories that she's rounded up are taking place all over the country. There are some that are in her area in Wisconsin, but they're coming from all over the country and in some places all over the world. For me, by the time I finished her book, I'm beginning to develop an entirely new narrative in my mind with regard to my personal perception of how all these things might fit together. Well, it's like an evolution of understanding. You know what it reminds me of is one of our older episodes, the series we did on the Knights of the Golden Circle, the yeah. KGC. Right. The gentleman who we reported on from his book, Shadow of the Sentinel, which is actually published under two different names. One is Shadow of the Sentinel. And Rebel the, uh, Gold. Rebel Gold yeah. is the other one, but they're essentially the same book. And in that story, this guy is out in the woods and he's finding carvings on trees and these are things that probably many hundreds, if not thousands of people had seen. Independently. Independently, not yeah. made a connection. And then he starts putting it all together. And next thing you know, he's digging up big jars full of gold and exactly. coins. That's and, a great parallel. Yeah. yeah. And if you haven't heard our KGC series, that's more of a historical show, which uh, we'll be getting back to some of those after we get through <laughs> the fall here for not, our listeners. Not so spooky, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> that's what you're saying right there about the big picture. There's the big picture that... You can't see. And just because you don't see the big picture doesn't mean that the little pictures aren't part of something larger and real. Exactly. And that's the point. When you see a weird carving on a tree, whether it's got a, a palm tree and a date on it, 1893 or whatever it is. And a spiral. And a spiral and a cross and a donkey. <laughs> and you think like, well, somebody had a little time whittling here. Uh, that's interesting and strange. It looks really old, but well, there you go. doesn't mean anything. That guy was just taking a nap by a tree, decided to carve some fun stuff into the tree. But you're only taking that instance by itself. And it doesn't mean anything, but it does mean something. So when you take it all together, it's like how we said the treasure's laid out. It's like a big spider web. There's an idea and there's sentient thought behind it. So when you're coming from an outsider, what do all these things mean, all these weird sightings? Well, there's probably a purpose to it, but we may never know. The world is mysterious. That's what I love about it. I choose to live in that world because it's interesting to me. And you want some answers here and there, and, and a lot of them you're not going to get. You're not going to be able to figure it out. But if we take our tools, which is science and reason, then you can kind of start gathering clues here and there. And that's all we're kind of doing with these anecdotes. I do believe that, I don't know, maybe a third of them are just people mistaking what they saw or interpreting a natural I think it's event. a higher number than that, but I'm yeah. naturally, well, okay, yeah, I'm naturally skept more skeptical than you are, or at least I was when we started this show, although <laughs> I'm getting know, closer the, to your point of view. That's an important point you bring up. It's not that I'm much more like, well, I'll believe in anything of that vein. It's that I think I probably maybe in a lifetime have heard more of these kinds of stories than you. That's definitely true. And what it does mean for me, I will take the whole of these bits of happenings and information that we hear about and not just generally dismiss them off the bat. It's like, okay, what is that? When somebody says, I saw a ghost or I saw a UFO or Bigfoot, Bigfoots, however you want to say it, well, that's impossible. Those things don't exist. And my question is, how do you know? How do you know what's not possible? How do you know what can't exist or what can? 
Most scientists believe that just mathematically, just by, you know... The sheer abundance of the universe? Yeah, just by probability factors, that there is other life out there. I'm sure some of them have got to be much more advanced than us and other galaxies, and that their science is much more advanced and their technology. That's okay to think about that. That's a probability. But then to make the break and consider, well, what if they're already here? Oh, no, we can't think about that. Why is that so crazy? When the idea that they exist somewhere far away, okay, not so crazy. Probably they do exist in other galaxies or even in ours. But the fact that maybe they're already here, people don't want to take that leap. Hi, my name is Ian Williams. You're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrick and Forrest Burgess. Now, a quick break for one of the show's sponsors. Well, we'd like to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Squarespace. They are the all-in-one way to create your own beautiful website. With Squarespace, you can showcase your work, publish content or a blog, sell products and services of all kinds, or promote your existing physical or online business. It really is the simplest way to create a beautiful online presence with a domain, website, or online store. And we should know, because as part of their sponsorship of us, we are building our own new website there. How's that been going, Scott? It's been super easy. I was able to make huge leaps in setting up our new webpage in just minutes. They have a large collection of beautiful templates that have been created by world-class designers, and I was able to load up several choices and preview how our new site might look with different themes in just a few clicks. Nice. Well, what about our store? Well, they have all kinds of powerful e-commerce functions. I can already tell it's going to be a piece of cake to set up and a lot easier to manage. I also love saying goodbye to something that we're dealing with on our existing website, which is constantly needing to upgrade, patch, or fix something. I'm so glad to be making the change to Squarespace, where all of that stuff is constantly maintained and handled for us invisibly on the back end. Ooh, almost as though it were being done from another dimension. Exactly. And with award-winning 24-7 customer support. Well, I'm looking forward to getting our new site done. We'll be up there with people from all walks of life, bloggers, writers, artists, photographers, museums, restaurants, you name it. So check out Squarespace at squarespace.com, register a domain name of your own right through their website, and start your free website or online store trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code LEGENDS to save 10%. Squarespace, make it beautiful. And now back to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. We're thrilled to have Linda Godfrey here with us tonight for an interview about her new book, Monsters Among Us, an exploration of otherworldly Bigfoots, Wolfmen, portals, and other odd phenomena. The book is coming out in just a few weeks on October 11th, 2016. Linda is one of America's foremost authorities on modern-day monsters. She is the author of over a dozen books on werewolves, hauntings, and the paranormal, including Real Wolfmen, True Encounters in Modern America, American Monsters, A History of Monster Lore, Legends, and Sightings in America, and Weird Michigan. She has appeared on many national TV shows, such as Monster Quest, one of my personal favorites on the History Channel, and has also been a guest on several radio shows, including the venerated Coast to Coast AM. All right. So, hello, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Scott, and thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about your background. What first got you interested in exploring these types of stories? I call myself the accidental werewolf chronicler because I had just started working as a reporter for a newspaper in southeastern Wisconsin when I heard the rumors that there was a road just outside of my hometown of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, 
where people were saying they saw what looked to them like a werewolf. And they'd say if there was such a thing, that's what it looked like. Upright, furry, stands five to seven feet tall, long fangs and a snout, ears on top of its head. And of course, the walking on its toe pads, they'd always say it looked like the legs were bent backwards. So I thought that was really strange. And I knew some of these people. I didn't think they were hoaxers. So I talked to our county animal control officer about it and turned out that he had a manila file folder, an official manila file folder marked werewolf. So when you get that level of official activity, it's news. And I talked about it with my editor. We pursued it. I interviewed some of the main witnesses, the ones that were willing to talk anyway, and we published it. It was the weekend between Christmas and New Year's from 1991 to 92. And I also want to say it went viral, but remember, we didn't have the internet back then. Right. So it went national within a couple of weeks. Inside Edition came out and Sci-Fi's New In Search Of and just all kinds of radio and TV programs across the United States. It was just mind-blowing. And we had busloads of tourists coming up from Illinois, going down Bray Road. Wow. And the thing was, I worked for that newspaper for 10 years, and I probably wrote three or four updates during that time. The rest of the time, I was just covering the usual stories. And when I decided after about 10 years that I wanted to stop and write books, I realized there was still so much interest because during that time, right from the get-go, people started contacting me with sightings of not just things that look like werewolves, but Bigfoot and the giant birds. And I realized that it was a huge phenomenon. It was worldwide. People were not losing interest as time went by. It was gaining interest. And so I wrote my first book, The Beast of Bray Road, Tailing Wisconsin's Werewolf, to fully document those years when it came to light and what everybody did and what everybody thought, and then go into some theory and local history, that kind of thing. And uh, I was thinking of it more really even as a historical, social look at, you know, what a small town goes through as much as I was thinking of solving the mystery of what this creature was. And when the book came out, that just amplified everything, got more and more publicity. And also, as from the beginning, not only were people calling me who were media representatives who wanted to talk about it because there weren't many people documenting sightings of unknown upright canines, as I like to call them. But then, again, the number of people reporting to me just kept increasing and increasing. And one book led to another. And here I am some 24 years after that very first newspaper story. And, you know, I have just as much interest. I still get every single week reports, usually one to three. So you can imagine how many that adds up to 52 weeks a year, 24 years. That's a lot. And sometimes there are lots more. So it's the story that will not die. And in fact, it's become very, very popular the last three or four years, which is something I hadn't been used to. I kind of felt like the Lone Ranger for a long time. So it's coming into the public eye. And I did just come across kind of a funny blast from the past. If anybody goes to my blog, which is at lindagodfrey.com, you'll see I just posted that same year of 1992, which was an election year back then, between the elder Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ross Perot. Oh, sure. I don't remember if it was my idea or the editors or what, but a full page of the week, the newspaper, was devoted to the Beast of Bray Road for president. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. 
<laughs> yeah, which was pretty funny, you know, and I took a picture of it. And I just threw it up on lindagodfrey.com. So if anybody wants to get a chuckle for the day, you know, you can go take a look at that. There's a couple little pun platform type things. Oh, man. You know, there. we don't usually get political on our show, but I wouldn't mind if the Beast of Bray Road was running right now, frankly. <laughs> I know. I know. It's all in fun, you know, and I asked on my blog, please, no big political diatribes or anything. It's, yes. But yeah, I think this is one year when he could be a viable candidate. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the other things I love about your book. Your sense of humor comes through in it. You take everything very seriously and you cover everything very factually. And you're a lot like we are. And that makes me feel like we're doing it the right way because we do like to find the humor in it. A lot of times when people delve into these subjects, I think they take it a little too seriously. Right. And it's important to keep an open mind, but it's also important to approach it in a way that you can deal with it yourself personally, because right. some of these stories are really, really frightening. Yes, they are. Although, you know, they're not gory. Right. That's the one difference that I think allows me to interject some humor every once in a while. I mean, if these were stories where every single one was like a human murder mystery, where you were describing horrific things that were, you know, horrible ways that people died, it's hard to find any humor in that. That's true. And really, my first book was historic murder, little known one that happened in Wisconsin in the 1920s. And there just wasn't anything funny about it. You know, it was a much different tone and demeanor than my other books have been. And I kind of thought, I don't really want to do that again. Sure, <laughs> sure. It was, a, it was six years of research, and you always felt like, oh, no, I don't want to offend the grandson that's still living, or you're always taking people's feelings into account, and you just can't laugh at that. We can absolutely relate to that. In fact, we had a story that we wanted to cover, and we've been contacted about several times and been unable to due to concerns for the survivors, actually. Because right. we, we don't do true crime that much, but sometimes we do. And I certainly couldn't do it all the time for the same reasons you mentioned. It's just, it wears you down. And I find that happening even with not just paranormal stories. We've covered like Amelia Earhart's disappearance and that. We sort of have the unsolved mysteries in search of mantra of whatever is interesting and unusual. But sometimes we have to take a break from the spooky stuff too, because we did a show on shadow people that like what happened to you exploded a lot more than I thought it would. My co-host Forrest knew that it was going to be poignant, but that's the one that we keep getting emails about. Oh, wow. And there's some comparisons and some talk in your book of yeah. very parallel shadow people stories. So right. the other thing that really fascinated me is we just did this three-part series on the Skinwalker Ranch. And for me, the wolf side of that story was not totally new, but it was more prevalent and prominent than I thought it would be. And mm -hmm. as I'm reading your book and what you're just telling me right now, I'm finding out that this sounds a lot like one of those things that's happening a lot more than people think it is. Right. And that reminds me of Shadow People because once we put that story out there and our listeners all heard it, everyone felt like it was okay to email in and say, hey, this happened to me, this happened to me. Yes. And it seems like that same sort of thing has happened to you with the dogmen and werewolf aspects of your book. Right. And people so often when they contact me say, you know, I felt like I was the only one or I was crazy. And I'm so glad to see that other people are sharing. And so that means maybe I can tell you too. And sometimes these experiences are 10, 20, 30 years old, but they're still just waiting to get this off their chest and tell somebody. Right. There was a couple in your book that I picked out that really stood out to me that were poignant. And I was wondering if there's one, if you wouldn't mind, maybe just doing a brief summary of for our listeners. It hit particularly close to home for me because it took place in Torrance, California. And for nine years, I lived about five minutes from there. <laughs> oh, wow. 
<laughs> so I was like, wait a minute. You know, I was right over by LAX in Playa del Rey and used to go to Torrance frequently. And I just couldn't believe this story. But I was wondering if you might just recount a little bit about it to give our listeners a taste of the kind of stuff that's in your book. Sure. Well, this one happened in 1985. So it was a little bit ago. And there were two grade school age children, a young girl and her older brother. Their mother was washing clothes in a commercial laundromat. And they were outside playing with a new Nerf ball that they had. And they were running and jumping. They were hitting the sides of the wall with the ball. And finally, the brother threw it farther away. And so she had to run down this little road behind the laundromat, which was filled with carports. And she noticed that there was a large metal rectangular door on the ground. And it was standing open. And she could see stairs down there. And as she looked, a man lifted up the door the rest of the way. And she said he popped out a little bit and had this door kind of propped on the back of his neck and his shoulders. And she said at that moment, she was pretty afraid because her mother had told her to never talk to strangers. And this was a really strange looking stranger. And she wanted to just get past him. But he complained to her about making noise and asked, what are you doing? Why are you here? Are you playing? And then he said, oh, it's okay. You don't have to be afraid of me, Jennifer. You don't have to be afraid. Well, then she really freaked out because she knew she hadn't said her name and that her brother hadn't used her name while they were playing. And he was dressed oddly in, remember the Seinfeld episode with the puffy shirt? Of course. (laughs) That's what this reminded me of. He was wearing like an off-white, long-sleeve, blousey type shirt with the cufflinks and a velvety or silky type vest. I mean, it sounds like a costume from a bygone era. Slicked back, brown hair, dark brown eyes. I mean, he sounds almost like a vampire or something. And she thought that too. And she said he had a manipulating, nice, light voice when he was calling me to come toward him. And she was staring at him in horror. And all of a sudden, he started saying, oh, no, not now, not right now. She said he was started sweating. His skin was sort of changing color. He seemed to be in pain. His veins in his neck and forehead were protruding. And he was still trying to get her to come over there. And she was shaking and terrified. And she said he continued to change. She saw his eyes change from dark brown to yellow, which is a canine color. She saw his jaw bones and facial bones changing form. Heard the sound of what she assumed were bones snapping. And he's turning into a creature. The brother came over and the man by that time just growled at him and then turned back around to her. And she said he was now almost turned into a dog type creature. The hair is growing out. The teeth are getting bigger. And frankly, this is exactly the type of scenario that all these years I claimed never happened because it's the first one I've gotten that communicated this bit by bit. It's almost like a movie style change. Yeah. Which is very weird. And he did actually grab her ankle, which she managed to get away from him before he held it too hard and she couldn't make it anymore. They ran back to the laundromat and she had pinkish marks on her ankles, but no other marks. And that her mother didn't believe it, but her brother always did. Later in life, he didn't like to talk about it anymore. But this was something that I took very seriously that I had to check out what... I mean, I couldn't go back to 1985, but the beauty of the internet is that you can go on all of these earth maps and zoom in and see things very plainly. And 
the laundromat, the carports, everything she described was right there. And the one thing I didn't know about was even that door, the rectangular door into the ground, that I thought was probably not correct because my husband is a civil engineer who specializes in wastewater treatments. Okay. And he's always talking about how manhole covers are round because it's the only shape that can't fall in. Okay. But when I asked him about this, he said, oh, yeah, that's the VS-228, blah, 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 blah. They use that for blah, 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 blah. So this was something this young girl wouldn't have had any knowledge of. If she had just said a manhole, I would have expected her to have described the one that everybody thinks of. Right. I actually have a friend who was visiting there, and he went over and looked everything over and took some pictures for me. And he said it had been pretty much paved over. She said the same thing. She'd been back there with her husband and checked it out, too, and said it had been remodeled. So everything she told me was factual in terms of what was there, how it was laid out. I just thought it was a pretty impressive story. Well, it definitely freaked me out, and especially thinking about it in a major urban center, you know, I think, oh, I'm safe. I'm in Los Angeles. Of course, by the same token, every night I have raccoons the size of three toasters <laughs> in my backyard. <laughs> but, and probably coyotes that you don't see. And we do actually have coyotes in our neighborhood. And we don't see them frequently because we're a little further from the river, but closer to the what they call the L.A. River, which is a concrete gully. You see them frequently. Mm-hmm. and. You read about them online all the time. Yeah, that story is the witnessing of the transformation. That's a freaky story. And the thing that interests me about it, too, was just his demeanor. And then also the puffy shirt. It's like, where is he coming from? What era is he? And he's, right. he's living underground. And it's just so bizarre. <laughs> it's an extremely weird one. But, you know, the other thing is that if you read the book, you also realize there was more than one bizarre thing in California. And for a long time, I got very few things from California. And then all of a sudden, the last couple of years, it's like they sort of woke up and started reporting these things. And there were several other very startling, transformative type stories Yes, in the Los Angeles area. Yes. I was a bit put off by that as well. (laughs) You mean uh, scared? Yeah. It's unnerving. I mean, just also the idea of the backwards legs. Just that Mm -hmm. concept, the bipedal, these creatures walking on two legs and with the backwards knees, it's a very uh, poignant image. It is. And yet when people think about it, see, most people never give too much thought to the dog legs. They know they're not like ours. But the reason they look backwards is because they're on their tiptoes and what would correspond to our ankle and heel joint is up off the ground. The right. same way ladies in stiletto heels are walking with their heels four to five inches off the ground. And so it just changes the way your leg looks. We're expecting to see a knee bending forward, but instead we're seeing the ankle joint bending backwards. Right. And the very appearance of that sort of precludes the idea of a costume in most cases. Right. Or they're going to have to build a pretty elaborate costume to pull that off. Exactly. And the closest people come to this are those springy stilts. Right. Where there's like one piece and they kind of spring down on them. But those are rather large. And I've seen people make costumes with those. And the feet and the legs end up looking enormous. Right. So here's something else I wanted to talk about that was prevalent because we're just coming off the Skinwalker set. But in Monsters Among Us, another thing that you bring up fairly frequently is the connection to Native American land or indigenous people's land and Mm -hmm. these sightings. Do you feel like there's something more there? Because I do, personally, just in the things that I've learned over the past couple of years with our research that we've done for our show, it does seem like there's a prevalence associated with 
these lands that have been occupied by Native Americans. How do you feel about that? Well, it bears out statistically. I mean, there's a different looking type of upright canine that doesn't really jibe too well with the ordinary ones that just have the yellow eye shine and they're the size of a big timber wolf, but not overly sized. And these other things are usually taller. They may be as tall as eight feet tall. They have usually black fur, not always, but very much more humanoid. They have actual shoulders rather than carrying their arms in front of them like your dog when it's begging for a treat. Right. Because actual canines don't have shoulders. They're not built that way. But these other things that people often see close to or on Native American reservations also have red eye shine. They've got more human-looking arms and legs and feet. It's just very different. And when people write to me and say, I saw one of these things... I'll say, do you live near or on a Native American reserved land? And very, very often the answer is yes. Right, which ties into the whole, all the Native American lore surrounding the Skinwalker mythology, which is pervasive in a lot of ways. Because the other thing that you talk about a lot in your book is the presence of Anubis. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Anubis and the sightings you've had related to that? Yes, Anubis was the Egyptian god of the dead. And... He was depicted with a jackal head and loosely black and a human-like body. And some of the illustrations that you'll see in books on Egyptology are actually paintings of priests wearing an Anubis mask. But they're representing what presumably the entire Anubis would have, you know, looked like a furred upright canine. And because it's the god of the dead, it has these connotations with the afterworld. And this is what people also see with what I call the phantom bedroom visitations, because there are an astonishing number of people who will wake up at night with this horrible, horrible feeling. And there is a tall, black-furred, often with slightly smaller ears than you would normally see on like a German shepherd or wolf that are usually described, the glowing red eyes. And sometimes there's more than one And they don't chase people or hurt them. They just stand there glaring at them and staring. In one case, this was from a woman who has a PhD as a professor at an East Coast prestigious university. And this happened to her. There were two of them. And she said she just felt that they were almost like tourists having a look around at her in her bedroom. It was very unnerving. And she was afraid, but she said they also seemed kind of majestic in a certain way. So that's another different way of looking at them. But these house visitations do usually involve these black-furred, much more humanoid-looking creatures. Was that also what the husband, I guess, was in bed and he woke up and saw that and then either his wife or his roommate came in and it disappeared, but they both were smelling a strong sulfur smell? Right, right. That smell of sulfur, that goes back a long way. It's often been associated with the paranormal and with odd events. John Keel um, used to write about it. And so often people who have sightings of these very anomalous things that don't seem to be entirely of the natural world will report this very disagreeable, strong odor, um, often of sulfur. With a canine, sometimes they'll say it's like the worst uh, dog urine odor in the world or something like that. But that stench is well known. That's so fascinating. And that's another case where there's two witnesses participating in it, because even though the man, he saw this thing and it disappeared, Mm -hmm. but when she came in, she could smell what it had left behind. So, And that's another thing that's really fascinating to me about your book. And most of the stories are corroborated by multiple witnesses. 
mm-hmm. which, which means that they all take on that extra air of believability. Right. And there's kind of a belief out there that people can all share the same hallucination. And I do document this with some modern studies that show that humans don't really share hallucinations. Okay. Unless it's a case of special mental telepathy, perhaps, or whatever. But I think it's been fairly well shown that you and somebody else may both be having a hallucination, but it's highly unlikely that it's going to be the same exact one that the other one's having. Right. If people are seeing the exact same thing, then obviously something different is happening, which right. which gets to the whole thing about the multiverse, because it's fascinating to me. And again, I keep mentioning Skinwalker, but one of the things that's fascinating to me is that idea of these multiple universes and these connections and how quantum physicists are getting closer and closer to revealing theories that seem to be aligned with a lot of stories like the ones in your book that people have been telling for generations. Right. And so many of these sightings show creatures doing things that natural animals can't do, either being invisible or transforming or suddenly disappearing, or you see the tracks that lead to a certain place and then they just end, you know, in the middle of of nothing. And it has made people speculate for many years that there must be some kind of doorway or portal or opening into another place. Now, Native Americans whom I've interviewed call this the spirit world. I think it's pretty analogous to what we now call other dimensions or just other worlds. And as you mentioned with scientists, it's gotten to the point where the most brilliant minds in the human race have started postulating these, not just theories, but actual formulas and equations that are very complicated, but they show that there must be some other type of world or place besides our own. Lots of different theories. You know, there's the bubble universe, which says there's one universe that bubbles out another one that bubbles. Kind of like if you're stacked bubbles in a high, if you're blowing bubbles and you have a big stack of them, they intersect at one little place. And then the next one will intersect with that one. And that they've shown that for at least the subatomic realm, there actually is interchange or there could be. And so... Once we know that, what's to stop the larger realm, you know, the people, yes, solid objects, from also using these things? We just simply don't know. We also simply don't know where or what these things are or if it's safe for humans or that kind of thing. So I think it's a little fruitless at this point to argue those fine details. We just know that there's elsewhere, with a capital E, that it appears these things can come and go from, and sometimes humans too. So my book was going to be more about this idea of the portals. And then I suddenly got this deluge. It was almost as if the universe knew that and was cooperating. I got this deluge of amazing newer encounters to tell about. Right. That I felt needed to be told, like the ones that we've discussed so far. And also I was coming up on the end of this uh, two-year research assistance that I'd been giving a local man who was a 40-acre hayfield who'd been having weird things. And so it seemed like it was almost better to put in all of the actual encounters because that's the unique information I have and then kind of correlate it with the things that have been known by the ancients and are beginning to be known by our present scientists. And that's the field that you talk about in the book, right? Yes. Yes. And that's which has the bipedal tracks that disappear. 
the whole portal thing, you, it is fascinating. And we just covered Skinwalker. So we talked about those particular portals that you mentioned. And what you're saying in your book and what you have a lot of stories are is that those things aren't appearing just there. They're appearing in other places as well, right? Right. Exactly. It just happens to be that this man's property is one of those little concentrations where it all, it all comes together. For instance, the, the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah was quite a large area of land, and everything was sort of spread out. If you imagine that instead, let's say you could take all of the phenomena that happened out there and attach it to a grid and then put that same grid over an urban area where one person wasn't taking note of everything that was happening. People in one side of the grid would maybe see the tracks. People in another part of the grid would maybe see strange light forms, and they wouldn't put all these things together. And I, I think that's what's happening in a lot of cases with these creatures showing up with anomalous sidekicks, Yeah, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. We don't see the correlations. And another thing I did with that book is kind of an experimental stab at a way that we can start putting these things together, which is whenever I received an encounter that had a good enough date that I could look up at a close enough location, I would look up the moon phase. Yes. I would look up solar flare status. I would look up anything like UFOs or other things that were being reported in the area. My point is not that this proves anything in this one book because out of all the many thousands and thousands of such incidents that are taking place, my book is a very small sampling, even though it's a fairly hefty book. I mean, it's over 350 pages. But if everybody who receives these kinds of reports and studies them could stop and do this kind of thing, we could build a much better database and be able to make these comparisons and maybe then pull up all the ones that have UFOs and all of them and see if there are stronger geographical correlations between them. Yeah, and coalesce the data because it seems like it might be the wrong idea to just look at everything right. as an independent event and look more at how things are collectively happening. Exactly. Because you mentioned John Keel, and that's one of the complaints about people who talk about the Mothman story and how it was relayed in the movie, which I completely understand. You have to make a movie what it is, and I love that movie. But there was a whole Mm -hmm. whole lot more to that story with Men in Black and UFOs and all that sort of stuff, which obviously muddies the water when you're trying to tell a story in a movie theater. But in terms of the bigger picture of trying to see if there's something going on that's larger than all of that, you really have to take into account everything that's coming into the experience. Right. The other thing that struck me about what you just said a minute ago about the universe sending you a message in terms of the information that started coming into you is that we have already received emails ourselves about it. And my own mother stopped listening to the Skinwalker series because she was getting a palpable horrible feeling that stopped Mm. the minute she hit. She said it didn't matter if we were joking around or whatever the moment was. So she stops listening to it. And maybe that's just an excuse. She didn't want to do six hours of stuff. But, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, on the other hand, we have a subreddit. And one of our listeners posted on there that as a child, he had frequently had bad dreams about this wolf, a huge wolf that he would see outside of his car. We're actually going to include the link to his post in our show notes for this episode, and I'll send it to you, Linda, as well. Great. Um, That's great. He said it's centered around these two paintings that his parents had when he was younger, and he had Native Americans in his family, and his mom would always hide them. And whenever she saw that he had them out, she would be angry. Hmm. He would have these recurring dreams sort of associated with that, and he hadn't had them in four or five years, he says, and he said the, the reason that the, these particular series 
got under his skin that we just did was he had the dream the night before he listened to the first episode. So he hadn't even listened to it yet. So, oh, wow. But on the other hand, he probably had in his mind the idea of what the story was, but still. Still, it's rather prescient. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of experience, and there's a lot of the wolf stories in your book, which I love too, the bipedal wolves, also the wolf smoking the cigarette on the log in the park. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) I know, I know, it's crazy. And, And I always stop and think, well, could this have been a mask? You have to ask yourself that, yeah. especially when the wolf is wearing clothing, because if it is a natural wolf that's somehow standing up, it's not going to have the manual dexterity nor the correct appendages to right. buttons and pull your pants on. Thumbs. The tail would get in the way. I mean, there's you know all kinds of yeah logistical problems with that. And the ones that just transform, that doesn't always hold up. It seems like the ones that I've seen... They're suddenly covered in fur and the clothing isn't visible anymore. The clothing is sort of subsumed under the apparition or whatever the person has changed into. Yes. So there's a lot of logistical problems with these things wearing clothing, unless it's a person with a mask on. And then it's actually a big advantage because you don't have to have a whole werewolf suit. You can just have a mask and some gloves. But they seem convinced that it was actually a wolf that was smoking cigarettes. And we've heard other stories like that. And and, and mm-hmm. that's like the third one we've heard of people seeing them bipedal, standing up, smoking cigarettes, yes. and in your case, sitting on this log in the park. Hey, maybe when you pass through a portal, maybe they don't have cigarettes in the neighboring universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard telling. There also is among Native Americans, you know, with the skinwalker lore itself, and then there are other types of rituals and things. And this is worldwide in nature-based religions with shamans and medicine men and other religions like for instance the tulpa which is a thought form that a person can create that's a tibetan idea but these shamans are able to form their thoughts or pull out the astral body and shape it to their thoughts or some people believe they make a connection with some sort of an unseen spirit matrix that they can then collaborate on to make a form And maybe if they do this, they can manage to include the clothing, too. Right. When you think about the transformation, because there was the other story about, I think the person was in the park, and they saw one that looked like it was jogging, partially transformed. Yeah, wearing a jogging suit, yeah. Right. So does that mean that they can't control when they transform? It just happens, and it's an inconvenience. I don't know. But the same thing with the one in Torrance. It was like, no, not now, not now. This is classic werewolf lore. Right. It's coming from somewhere. It is. And I think of, you know, one of the most famous examples of the tulpa was, I can't think of the lady's name right now, but they had made a tulpa thought form and it looked like some kind of little creature with a cold, almost a monk's habit on it. So that was a thought form, but it had clothing. Right. It had gotten to the point where it got stronger and stronger and could run away and other people could see it and they would see the clothing too. So I think there is some back backing to that idea that if it's the type of creature that has been, let's just say conjured for lack of a better word, then it can have all the uh, apparel choices and latest fashion styles that <laughs> that the... Uh, practitioner is able to give it. And that's interesting, too, because this sort of awareness of culture, and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of things about that, not just technically, but also in terms of fashion or appearance or coolness, because I also enjoyed the story about the woman who saw the limousine. 
and this beautiful, beautiful black German Shepherd type dog is in the back of the limousine, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And he rolls the window down and lifts his paw and rests it casually on the door. And she looks and it's a human hand. Yeah. And also it appeared to be grinning at her, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's something that's really common, even with just the ones that look like regular wolves or dogs on their hind legs that people encounter along the roadside or on trails or whatever. They will almost always say, it looked at me as if it were leering or sneering or jeering. They'll use one of those three words, like it was um, superior to me. And oftentimes they'll even add that they felt it was giving them some kind of a, a mental warning, such as, you know, if you tell anybody you saw me, I'll get you, or I could jump on your car right now, right. or I could have you for lunch, you know, which starts to tell me that perhaps even these ones that look more mundane just on their hind legs, because just being on the hind legs is not a supernatural act. Mammals can do that if they're motivated or trained. But there's more to it than just that. People have this feeling that the creatures are not only very strangely curious and aware of them, but that they're self-aware or sentient and very intelligent. Right. They're peering in windows. They may be stalking. They exhibit predatory Mm -hmm. traits, but Mm -hmm. they're not attacking either. I've heard of a few other researchers that have insisted there have been big attacks or people were mutilated and killed, you know, and I've always allowed from the beginning that maybe there are some that were killed and never lived to tell a tale and just vanished or became one of the missing, the vast numbers of missing people. But time after time after time, when people are out in the open with these things and they're chased and they've always feel like it could get them if it wanted to, but then it never does at the last minute, it veers off. And you might have recalled I had a Bigfoot story in yes. this book. Yes. One of the most complete and terrifying Bigfoot sagas I've ever encountered anywhere, and it was in Chicago, of all places. And this man felt the same way. He was being chased. And it's odd, and people don't like it when you mention this either, but I have to be honest to what the uh, witnesses say. And he's one of them. He said, I was so out of my mind. I didn't know what else to do. I just said, oh, Jesus, help me. And it stopped. It wasn't behind me anymore. He said he didn't know if it ran into the woods that they were running along or if it just had stopped a little sooner and he didn't see it or if it disappeared. He didn't know where it went. But so many people will have at the last minute this intense desire to cry out for heavenly assistance from one place or another. And it helps. Well, we we did a story not too long ago called The Sludge Entity that was a multi-parter about a family whose child, to simplify it, oversimplify it, was seemingly possessed or had some sort of issues. Uh, He was having physical problems. He couldn't walk. He was sick. And it was a moment like that that brought him back from the brink. And that's something interesting that Forrest and I talk about on the show a lot. You know, where do you come down religiously? What is your belief system? And it is curious because with the Bigfoot story you mentioned, there were so many frightening things about that to me. And obviously, he could have easily been caught. He had a bicycle that he had was apparently yes. taking with him, which I yes. absolutely would have left behind. <laughs> yeah, that bicycle would have been you yeah. know, just dropped immediately and come back later for it, maybe. Yeah. In addition to that, it was initially across the river from him, and then it suddenly— was on the same side as he was, throwing rocks at his former position. And then when it gave chase, the other part that scared me was that there seemed to be a peanut gallery of like creatures on the other side of the river talking yes. <laughs> talking back and forth. You can only imagine, in, in some language that you couldn't understand, you can only imagine them being like, leave it alone, leave it alone. You know, I don't know, don't kill the human. Yeah. It's so strange. But like you said, and it's another thing my co-host mentions a lot, 
he has this thing that he calls the rules. And there's these rules that even though all these strange things are happening, and it's sort of the classic stuff, you know, the skinwalker can't come into your house unless you invite them. The same with black-eyed kids or or the shadow people are grinning at you, but they can't throw a knife and stab you, these sort of things. So it's very curious how in this particular story, and this guy was scared to death and has been for the rest of his life. It's just so fascinating. It does make you wonder about if you are trying to wrap your head around the theoretical physicist's ideas of multiverses and that sort of thing, what the rules are. And right. But then again, you made reference to people that are missing, and you had written, even in your own book, you made reference to the missing 411, which I still haven't read, and I can't wait to check out. But And I don't know if you've read it, not to put you on the spot, but there, there are people that have vanished, and a lot of, there's a right. lot of commonality to it, and they've been in the wilderness, right? That's the crux of that particular right. book. Right. Yeah. State National Forests, particularly. Yeah. Right. And that author, David Polites, does not say what he thinks is taking these people, even though there are documented account after documented account. However, a lot of people have speculated that maybe he thinks it's Bigfoot because his first two published books were about Bigfoot. Right. But he doesn't say. And so I don't want to speculate where he's not saying, but you never know. I mean, maybe it's a combination. Maybe, you know, there's more than one thing going on there. The other thing that's really fascinating to me and seems to be an ongoing theme and that I enjoyed reading about in Monsters Among Us, in more than one case, you have interference with technology. And this is something that we've talked about a lot, specifically with cameras. We've talked about it in relation to Skinwalker. I've often made references to, I don't know if you saw the uh, Bigfoot series that Les Stroud did, the survival series. Yes, I liked it. It Yeah. Great series. Mm-hmm. And, and he had lots of camera issues. They had camera mm-hmm. issues at Skinwalker. And then you had the story where they had set up the game cameras, and mm-hmm. you knew you were going to get something. And what you wound up with was this strange sort of mist appearing mm-hmm. in the frames and no sign of the physical activities that were taking place with respect to a deer carcass and bait that had been left out, right? Right, exactly, because the property owner had a 60-pound deer that was lying in a certain spot. The game cameras were turned right on it, and when we went to look at the results, there was about half an hour, 30-some different trigger shots during the half an hour, where all of a sudden there was this column-shaped, very discreet mist, and by discreet, I mean that It covered just a certain area. It wasn't like a hazy fog or that the fog had rolled in. And this was daylight. It wasn't night. The deer had been dead a long time. It couldn't have been steam rising from the body or anything like that. That fog or mist, whatever it was, obscured the carcass. And when it left, all of a sudden it was gone and the carcass just gone. And nobody had showed up. A human coming in there to get that or any animal would have been shown approaching the mist, at least, you know, and there was nothing. But there were tracks leading away. They were bipedal, large wolf-like tracks that were deeper than they should have been and no forepaws. That's how it was known to be bipedal. And the property owner and another man followed the tracks all the way through his field until they ended at a road where they couldn't see where they went. But um, it had to go through a barbed wire fence at one point. And The only thing that they could think of to possibly explain it was that it had picked up this deer carcass and slung it over its shoulder, somehow gone over the fence and then kept going. But the trail cam was of no use. I have my own trail cam. I've just about given up using it because the same exact thing happens. And 
if there isn't a mist or something like that obscuring the actual object, it's almost as if the electronics are, themselves are tampered with. Because when it comes to the point where the bait is taken, usually there's some other evidence around. I mean, I've seen a squirrel take a big apple up a tree, the neighbor's dog come and get something, sure. etc. And they show up great. But on these other occasions, either the screen looks white or it'll look black or it'll look like your scrambled TV or on one occasion, I had it really tightly belted to a tree. And I think they would have had to have bent the tree branch. But at one point where there's a picture of the leaves up above the tree, and then in the next one, it's back in the normal position and the bait is gone. Right. That's the exact same thing that happened in Les Stroud's show. He had bait that was gone. Mm-hmm. I think a Snickers bar way mm-hmm. up a tree. He's out in the middle of nowhere. The camera turns off. It's gone. Like in one frame, you could barely see something in the corner of the frame. Right. And this repeats itself. And it's the same thing out at Skinwalker. And it's, it just blows my mind because if you're dealing with these animals, even if they're from another universe or whatever you want to believe, how are they aware of our technology and how are they thwarting it and why are they thwarting it? Or is it just an ancillary happenstance to the way that they operate? I don't, you know. Yeah. Well, some people postulate that because they come from some elsewhere, that perhaps the atoms in that universe or whatever it is don't vibrate at the same frequency as ours. Maybe they have, every person has an electromagnetic field, an an animal that we create ourselves. Maybe their electromagnetic field is just enough off so that either they don't register or that they're very much aware of something like an electronic camera, which would be producing its own EMF so then they're able to avoid it. You know, there are lots of different possible explanations for it. We don't, we don't know what it is, but it does seem that they are almost instantly aware of any sort of form of electronics. And the times that I've had personal encounters myself were times when I did not have a camera in my hand or even, even on my person or any other type of electrical recording device. And then, of course, the skeptics are going to say, well, how come there's never a camera? How come you can't get the Mm -hmm. – you just run into this cycle of frustration that it becomes impossible to collect it. And it's very interesting what you say about them existing on a different plane or existing a different area. But that was one of the things that I – when we were talking about Robert Bigelow, who was, I believe, still the current – although one of our listeners said that the Skinwalker Ranch has been sold, but Bigelow had had it for quite some time. Right. And in his development of space travel, he had this theory that you can't develop space travel on the Earth because it's all about breaking the bonds of the Earth and that you should develop at least interstellar travel or any kind of serious travel should be developed in orbit. And Mm -hmm. so that you're in the environment that you're trying to – conquer. And maybe if these things are coming from somewhere else, we need to get trail cams from where they come from as opposed to exactly. here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you have the mutilations, which were another parallel. The strangest things happened out at this property. I think we went through 17 deer carcasses. Right. And different things would happen to different carcasses. I actually had a picture of a deer that yes. looked sort of like one of the classic types of mutilations And just by happenstance, a reporter from central Wisconsin had been contacted by a farmer who started having odd mutilations of his cows. And the cow mutilation looked exactly like the deer mutilation on this farm. And it's just not what normal animal predators do. Yeah, and you also mentioned a raccoon somewhere that, and I was surprised. That was the first one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that raccoon, the, the way that it was disemboweled exactly matched one of the Skinwalker stories with a cow. And these are 
how many miles apart? We're talking about a thousand miles at least apart. These stories are taking place. Oh, at least. And this man, uh, the property owner, is a retired math teacher from Chicago. He had never read any of these types of books. He had no clue that there was such a thing as Skinwalker Ranch. He just happened to observe this raccoon that appeared. It had been zipped open from his chin down to its tail and that the insides had been carefully scooped out in compact bit and laid to the side. And then when he came back, every single bit of those were gone. And he just knew enough about nature to know that there should have been scraps of them all over the place and things fighting over them and bits of hair and scenes of a tussle. There was nothing like that. All right. So here's, the book is amazing. There's a lot of really amazing stories in it. We're going to, Forrest and I are going to talk about one or two of them um, outside of the body of the interview, but I really think our listeners are going to love it. I wanted to ask you another question, especially having written so many books at this point. Do you feel like since you started out, I know for us, we've only been doing this seriously a couple of years and more as a hobby for many years prior to that. But the more information that you start to gather or that we've started to gather, we start to see patterns in the, Mm -hmm. not just patterns in the events, but patterns in the humanity that surrounds the events. You talk about how people go into certain camps. You say, oh, I'm in the portal time travel camp. I know that there's these two big schools of thought on Bigfoot. Oh, it's just a cryptid. There's people that are like, oh, it doesn't exist at all. Other people, it's a cryptid. It's earthly. It has nothing to do with dimensions. And then other people are like, no, Bigfoot comes and goes from another place and can be invisible. When you have gone through all the information that you've gathered, especially with all these people mailing things into you now, do you Mm -hmm. feel like your personal belief system has changed since you first started doing all this kind of research and writing these books? Do you mean just in regard to the creatures themselves or? I guess in terms of what you believe. I'm not asking you if you go to church or anything like that. I'm just saying, do you? I do. I don't mind admitting that. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of what you believe, what you've learned, how does it all jibe and come together for you? I believe that in the Bible, there are many, 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 many references to various kinds of spirits, otherworldly creatures. I mean, you could consider angels and so-called demons and things like that to be um, some type of otherworldly creature, I guess. So coming from a Christian background where there's a belief that there is a spirit world, it makes me much more open to the idea that perhaps some of these things that look like they're solid flesh and blood animals could also be something from another place. You know, when you come from believing that there are other places, it's not such a great leap. So I would say that my ideas about the creatures themselves have probably begun to lean that way because in the very beginning, I figured it was probably something that I called the indigenous dogman, which would just be some kind of wolf or wolf hybrid that was already here. And then just through natural selection and adaptation, not necessarily any kind of full-blown evolution, but just, for instance, the prairie landscape might have made it advantageous for some of these canines with bigger paws to walk upright because they could see what was coming at them. It would just give them a literal heads up over the competition. Sure. So it seemed to me that it was very likely that there were small pockets of these slightly differently adapted wolves that were being seen by people, especially since they were so often engaged in predation activities, you know, eating roadkill by the side of the road, chasing deer, carrying parts of deer, that kind of thing. It just seemed to make sense. And then over all the years, because I have tried to keep an open mind and not ignore the inconvenient parts that people tell me, it began to dawn on me that there were more and more and more times where these animals just didn't seem normal. 
if you meet a bear, this is my husband's deer hunter, and, and he's been out in his stand where a bear has gone by, and it's kind of not paid him very much attention, just maybe gave him a sidelong glance. It did not turn and make full eye contact with him, sneer or jeer, and give him this feeling that it could come and get him if it wanted to. Right. And I think that people recognize this behavior is not a normal animal behavior. So I try to keep from letting my own biases prevent me from studying everything that comes and trying to correlate it to other things and and use it as data rather than something to further my own personal beliefs and biases. Sure. Well, and that's why I think your book is so great. I really can't recommend... Uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend Monsters Among Us more to our listeners. If you've enjoyed our show and a great number of the topics we've covered, you're really going to love this book. I am excited to have my own copy of it, an advanced copy, so you guys can't have it yet. But <laughs> <laughs> but it's coming out very soon, October 11th, right? Right, and it can be pre-ordered right now. If you go to lindagodfrey.com, you'll land on a little thing you can click on to take you to pre-order it. A lot of people have been doing that. And I'm also going to be at the Milwaukee Paracon the weekend of October 15th, and I will. that's the first place that I'll have them personally for sale and be signing them. And you can just look up Milwaukee Paracon 2016 to find that. So great. that's going to be a great deal of fun. Yeah. Th- that's awesome, well, we'll, and we'll include links to that in our show notes for this episode. Thank you so much. All right, Linda, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure, and you asked great questions. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you, and please keep us in mind. If you uh, Maybe we can call on you again as these stories evolve and you continue to do your work. I would love that anytime. Okay, great. Thank you. You're welcome. My name is Mary Zosi. Scott and Forrest want to thank you for partaking in tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends. Now for a message from the folks who helped them keep the lights on. So you already know this, man, but I'm a watch guy. I've always loved watches. I think it's just a general obsession with both mechanical things and, as everyone has heard on the show, the concept of time. (laughs) Right. That's why I couldn't have been more thrilled when I found out Movement Watches was sponsoring the show. Well, it's great news for both of us because I love watches, too. It's hard to get a collection of different watches going when even the inexpensive ones are several hundred, if not thousands of dollars. And these watches look amazing and are really affordable. I wanted a classy-looking but functional watch to wear every day, and this is it. It's got a genuine leather band, a chronometer, and a very sleek, modern design. Mine's black and gold, more of a dress watch with a black leather band, and I haven't taken it off since I got it except to sleep. My wife saw it on the dresser and was like, whoa, how much was that? And I said, well, if you went to a department store to buy a watch like this, you could easily pay four or $500. And movement watches start at just $95. That's what you said, Emily? Okay, I probably didn't say that to her. I probably said I got it free because these awesome guys just sponsored us. But even if I hadn't, it still would have only been 100 bucks. Well, the other thing that I like about movement is that they started small like us. Two dudes with a dream. In their case, that dream was to make affordable, stylish watches because they thought beautiful, well-made watches should be available for less. They went on to spread the word through YouTube and podcasts like ours, and now they've sold over half a million watches worldwide, starting at just $95. So with movement, you can actually get a fair little watch collection going without breaking the bank. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash legends. That's mvmtwatches.com slash legends. Now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash legends 
and join the movement. And now back to Stasha Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Well, that was a great interview. Very entertaining conversation there. Yeah, it went really well. I got to admit, I was somewhat nervous. Uh, we've interviewed <laughs> a handful of people. and More than um, the average seen... person does in their daily lives. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but not uh, much more. I was a little nervous, but it went well, I think. And I really enjoyed talking to her. And I hope that we get to continue our relationship with her, actually. Yeah. You know what? If we come across some weird anomaly, especially like some of the ones that listeners have provided us, she might have some insight on that. Yeah. I love the fact that she, just by the amount of data she's collected, over the years and reported on. She has a wealth of knowledge of incidents. Well, it is interesting because you and I, we talked about this before the interview at the top of the show. We talked about the difference in our own perspectives between each other because you had consumed more information than I have. So you have more experience with it than I do. And then we're talking to someone like her, who's an investigative journalist, who has really been compiling hardcore information since the 90s. She's studied these things. She follows up with them. She interviews people. Yeah. I just hear them. No, we're just... (laughs) I repeat them incorrectly at parties. Any of these, you know, big names, and Nick Redford gives her a story in the book. Yes. About a dog man yeah. appearing in his bedroom or coming down the hall. And the tidbit that I gleaned from that, again, which I love because it's little bits of uh, clues here, is that it seemed like it was speaking some yeah. kind of dog language. And he sensed that it was unhappy and angry. That's the thing. She got her start covering the Beast of Bray Road, which is nearby to where she lives or lived at the time anyway. I'm not yeah, sure Elkhorn, Elkhorn, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah. Southern Wisconsin. It's very southern Wisconsin. And the first sighting of the Beast of Bray Road, according to Wikipedia anyway, was 1936. I'm sure her book has much more information on it, but I haven't read that particular book. It could have been way before that, you know, the first sighting, but I think in modern reporting. Yes. That was the first instance that that happened. Yeah, and it went on and it I guess it had come to more of a head. Later on, as she had mentioned that the animal control officer had a folder entitled Werewolf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. that's serious business, you know? Uh, it's like, here's an official we remark when some kind of official entity makes note of something and actually kind of deals with it. Not because of their own personal beliefs, but that it's happened so much that officially they have to recognize it. They need to develop a protocol. Yeah. And they need to go get uh, those, what is it, that weird metal bar with the loop on the end? You got to <laughs> yeah, get for dogs bigger and, ones. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes seven feet tall or just a, a box with a stick and a pack of smokes under it. Yeah. To trap whatever it is. You know what? At that point, I'm putting in for a transfer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, there's a testimonial on a YouTube clip that we will have in our show notes from a Fox show. And... One animal control officer, and I don't know if it's the same guy, it might be, but she's featured on it, so you get to see Linda. Right. She's interviewed in this piece, and he basically recounts this incident where he was picking up a dead deer, put in the back of his truck, was roadkill. Then something tries to get the deer out of the back of his truck, and he looks in the rearview mirror, and we're back to the skinwalker description of a large, he said kind of a bare body with a dog or wolf head on it, long pointy snout, teeth, beady eyes, beady glaring eyes. (laughs) Again, I'm putting in for a transfer. (laughs) Well, that's what's interesting is that he's not shy at all about mentioning this. And, you know, generally, as we said, public officials and people who work with official agencies don't like to talk about this because it's frowned upon. You do sound maybe like you're a little wacko, but he's like, hey, I can't explain it. I just know what I saw. 
And it's not wishful thinking that it's something crazy or fantastical. You're just describing what you saw. Yeah. And I believe truthfully. So, And was it wearing a blue and white checkered shirt and smoking a cigarette? I didn't <laughs> No, I think this was more hungry animal. Can I have that deer? Are right. you going to use that? Are you going to finish the rest of that? And uh, it starts shaking the truck, and that's when he said, oh, okay, I'm at it. I'm going to smell like <laughs> pull away here. Yes. But it didn't, it didn't run after him or anything. But no, he was contracted by the, the county, I believe, to go pick up uh, roadkill and just out doing his job, much like uh, Roy Neary in um, Close Encounters. That's what it reminded me of. Yeah. Just a strange thing happening while you're essentially at work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what happens to us all the time. Yes. I wanted to talk about something that I mentioned with her, and I went over it a little bit. We do have a subreddit dedicated to us that Tess sort of oversees when she can. It's difficult for us to get over there a lot, but we do check it out every now and then. And one of our listeners had posted something over there relating to Skinwalker, and not to chime on Skinwalker so much because we're on a new topic now. We're talking about Monsters Among Us, but they have a lot of common ground, these two books, and the ideas of a, a high number of the sightings that are parallel between them. So the Redditor who posted the story gave me permission to read it on the show. So I'm just going to read it here real quick, and you're going to understand why it's pertinent both to Skinwalker and also to Linda's book, Monsters Among Us. I wanted to hold off posting this until I could finish all the Skinwalker episodes since it was such a broad and intricate story. I am what you call an open-minded skeptic. I personally don't believe in ghosts, aliens, or the paranormal, generally speaking, but by that I mean I've yet to find anything compelling enough to do so. That doesn't mean I'm not looking. Also, I have a personal story that I cannot yet explain scientifically, and it's pretty astonishing. So, skinwalkers. My great-grandmother on my father's side was full-blooded Cherokee. Her parents tried to naturalize when she was very young, and as she grew up, she tried to hide her heritage due to racial reasons. As such, my family knows very little about our history, but the blood runs thick. Both my grandmother and my father look very Native American. My mother is very religious and grew more so as I grew up. She was very big into the satanic panic of the 80s, and it's always been a point of contention between us. She has always been afraid of my father's native roots and any relics left in the family. When I was young, we had two Native American paintings of sorts. They were on some kind of thin-pressed hide or leather. It was tan or brown and soft like suede or velvet. The paint was almost like a dye, but very dark and heavy. One was of a black snake with white spots down its back, and the other was of a wolfman-looking thing. My mother hated them, and any time I was caught with them out, I would get in trouble, and she would hide them again someplace else. I thought they were amazing. When my parents divorced, these went missing along with everything else in the house. I believe they were put into storage, and then the storage not paid. I lost all my childhood possessions this way. Also, as a child, and more rarely into adulthood— I would have this recurring dream that would always terrify me, and until your episodes on the Skinwalkers, I had zero context for the dream. However, now, it seems all too real. We're riding in a car. I'm in the back seat, my face pressed against the window as I look out across the horizon of rolling hills and farmhouses. In the far distance, on the crest of a hill, I see a colossal wolf the size of a building. On its left and on its right are two giant dogs the size of men. The wolf is lounging comfortably. The two dogs are at attention. The wolf sees me, and we make eye contact. Its eyes are gentle, but human. The two dogs at its sides break and run towards the car. They cross the distance in seconds. One dog always vanishes from my vision. The other charges right for the moving car. It is black, 
and it is shaped like a Labrador crossed with an Irish wolfhound. Thick body with a wolfhound's head. Its hair is wiry, but jet black. Its eyes are glowing red like hot embers. I scream to whoever is driving the car that the dog is going to get us. They stop the car and get out, leaving me inside. I never can identify the driver, but they seem happy this is happening. The dog rushes up to my window, growling, and starts ripping at the door. It shreds the metal with its paws and rips the handle apart in its mouth. The dog is larger than the car. It has to look down at me through the window. It continues to rip apart the door until the door itself breaks away and comes off the car. Screaming, I retreat to the far side of the back seat as the dog climbs into the doorway. It leans in as a human would, putting its paws on the front and back seat rests and stooping its head down to fit inside. It looks me in the face with its burning eyes, and then it roars. It is a full sound. If there were a maximum value for sound, this is that sound. All frequencies, all gains, every capacity to hear is completely filled up and obliterated with this sound. It destroys me utterly, and I wake up. I had this dream regularly as a child. I had a few other dreams of the dog with red eyes coming for me, but this one was very common. Now here is why Skinwalker Ranch episodes creeped me out so badly. I haven't had this dream in over four or five years, and it was four or five years before that time. The night before the morning I went to play episode one, of Skinwalker Ranch, I had this nightmare. Suddenly, I have some frightening context. But it's all coincidence, right? All right, so that was posted by Reddit user Team Braniel, who said I could use ah. his Reddit handle and I'm not doxing him. So that's the information there. I, I love that story. And the reason that I wanted to mention it tonight, first of all, it has an extremely direct parallel to the story of Mrs. Sherman, from Skinwalker Ranch with the right. large wolf in the two Looking dogs. into the car. Yeah. And then the fact that he heard it before he even listened to the show. And also, prior to that, didn't have any context for the whole idea of Skinwalkers, really. So even though I had said to Linda during the interview, oh, well, maybe he already knew about that and that informed his dream, what he's saying actually in the post, now that I read the story, is that he didn't really have context. And so then he had the dream, and then he heard the story the next day that put some framing on it. And the reason it connects for me, too, to Linda's book is because here we go again with the dogman, with the wolf, with these apparitions of these large canines that are so much more than just a rabid, dumb animal. All due respect <laughs> for, you know, <laughs> to, to dogs. I love my dog. No, we sure. You know. Yeah got a brain the size of walnut, but I love her. So my point <laughs> is just that, what is this thing that keeps coming up? And also, this is another connection to being Native American. Well, I mean, there's he's got a, Cherokee blood, yes. and his family. It's just fascinating to me. It's all very fascinating to me. No, it's very symbolic. All the elements in this dream, I would think a dream interpreter would have a field day with this. The dream itself is pretty scary. Even if you're not Native American, to have this recurring dream of this frightening encounter yeah. with these large beasts, it's a lot of very serious imagery here. But the dog appearing in the dream in and of itself is very symbolic. And you look at dogs, the saying goes, God gave dogs to humans as a companion, as a treat, as a gift. And they can be very loving and very protective of us. 
On the other side of that coin, they can be very vicious and a threat and dangerous. I mean, who guards the gates of hell but a three-headed dog? Yeah. So, And there was that one in Ghostbusters, too. (laughs) Well, that's, yes, that's what it- (laughs) Who brought the dog? (laughs) That's what it goes back to. It's a very old, ancient, as long as there's been humans and animals interacting, some kind of canine has been there. So in his dream specifically, there's a lot going on there. And I think talking about those paintings he had, what were the two images? One was of a black spotted snake, right? Yes. And the other one was like a wolf man of some kind. I would say probably a skinwalker, frankly. And then yeah. a black snake with white spots, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. also very interesting. Now, as a little kid, there's paintings that I stared at that I love. And we, we had a lot of Native American art that came from my grandparents and my dad as well. So it was kind of around our house a yeah. lot. Where and was that? Out west where that kind of um, theme and stylistic is prevalent. So I remember those images to this day. It's nothing that frightening, but some would say like, well, he just saw those as a kid. He liked staring at those. That's what infused his dream and and it kept coming back to him. However, those two images have a lot of meaning with legends. Now, do you remember this email we got from a listener right after one of our last episodes here? And she talked about the black serpent. Uh, yes, I do. I do. Do you have that? I found it just now. I punched it up. I, I just searched for serpent. And then luckily it came up. The search yeah. terms in our inbox that we use. Oh, jeez. Yeah. No, Scott will send me something that just says, wow. And the subject lies. Like, I, I can't find that again. They all say, wow. So, no, but then the next yeah. thing, it's like serpent, no, well, skinwalker, <laughs> glowing well, this, red eyes. Yeah. There's so much of that. It's hard to sift through. Yeah. Uh, but this one struck me because she was talking about the skinwalker episode. And when Scott had mentioned the teens, the classic horror story, were attacked at the lake yes. at the Bottle Hollow Reservoir, mm-hmm. right, by the Black Snake. Well, yes, outside of Fort Duchesne. Well, Amanda heard this and, as a hobby, studies Native American legends and had a little story to relay, which I thought tied into this pretty closely here. Okay. So I'm just going to read. Uh, we don't really have permission. I'm, I'm just going to read it. Her name's not really Amanda. We don't know who this is. They haven't really given us permission, but it's such a good paragraph here. I think it warrants mentioning. So, wanted to share a bit of information about the black serpent attacking the lake goers, at least what I know from reading my local Native American legends. It's true, it could be a skinwalker, but the antlered snake that is depicted by Native Americans had another application in legends. Cherokee call it an uktena, or ukten, but it's almost universal. For example, the Sioux believed the serpent warred with Thunderbird in ancient times and was ultimately drove to extinction by the birds. Uktena is a symbol of death and is described as so poisonous a person could die just by following its trail. Even seeing one in a dream means something bad will occur. It dwelled in water, and its weakness was a seventh spot on its back. Sometimes its weakness was thunder or fire, depending. Either way, the presence of a large black serpent horned or not, skinwalker or not, would be a terrible omen to see at a lake or river. So that was pretty, uh, well, that wasn't featured in his dream, but that was one of the two paintings. No, it was one of the paintings, yeah. And everything's connected, especially when it comes to Native American folklore. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating. And why is it the seventh spot? Seven, here we go with seven. It's seventh wave, seventh spot. Seven, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, the seventh (laughs) seal. It's Well, numbers are very important in the rule of threes, the duality of two. It all means something, but just the imagery here of an antlered snake, it's a cross-hybrid animal with two attributes of two different animals. That brings back Anubis, which she was talking about. And there's some stories in her book, in Linda's book, that talk about the Anubis appearing 
at the foot of people's beds. The ARC started looking into the Anubis, and I would like to give a shout out on this particular episode, actually, to both Marissa Ball and Marie Mayhew for their work on this episode, as well as Devin, who is our um, applied physicist. But those guys had dug up some interesting information. One of the things that they found about the Anubis was that it was thought to be an Egyptian jackal's head on a man's body. Right. And that it had to do, was the god of death had to do with embalming. Your preparation to the underworld. Yes. There's some theories that the origins of it being associated with death are that these jackals used to dig up shallow graves Mm -hmm. and be associated with the bodies. However, we also found recently that they've genetically identified a wolf in South Africa and that it's possible that it's not the Egyptian jackal, but it's actually a wolf. Uh, A wolf's head on a man's body. Yeah. So we're coming right back. Let me see if I can find that article here. Yes, it's an article from the Archaeology News Network. Author Jeremy Hance from Source Manga Bay, January 26, 2011. The Egyptian jackal, which may have been the inspiration for the Egyptian god Anubis, is actually not a jackal at all, but a member of the wolf family. New genetic research in the Open Access Journal, PLOS 1, not sure what that means, finds that the Egyptian jackal is Africa's only member of the gray wolf family. The new wolf, dubbed by researchers as the African wolf, is most closely related to the Himalayan wolf. We could hardly believe our own eyes when we found wolf DNA that did not match anything in GenBank, lead author Dr. Eli Runes said in a press release. GenBank is an open-access nucleotide database. The genetic data also points to an early origin for the Egyptian jackal African wolf. In fact, researchers believe the animal is older than well-known wolves of the northern hemisphere. According to the study... Indian, Himalayan, and the new African wolf broke off from the gray wolf before it moved north, colonizing Europe, northern Asia, and the Americas, further subdividing into different subspecies. Ethiopian wolves, which are a unique species of canids, are older still. So they made this connection to this wolf that predates the Egyptian jackal and predates... And so here again, we're coming back to the wolf. I feel like we've really been crying wolf for like five (laughs) episodes now. Yeah, but, <laughs> well, you know, it, they're such a big part of our lives, whether you like them or not, you know, have one or not. I do like them. Yeah, when they're at a distance, <laughs> and they're the, and they're the size of a of a and normal of a, of a, sized of a, of a and walking on cat. four legs. Yeah, yeah. Animals like that, especially ones that we have such interactions with, figure prominently. And of course, you know, the jackal figures prominently in Christian in an association with the devil. Remember the the film uh, The Omen, I think, too, where. The scientist finds that he analyzes Damien's blood as a teenager, I think, and there's some jackal cells in it. Like, what? Oh, I must okay. report this. And then he dies in the elevator. Oh, that guy. By way of mention that you, from the last episode. Yeah, I mentioned it. <laughs> that it possibly could have happened. Bisected. But now, one thing I wanted to say that's kind of on the flip side of this, I send this image to Scott when I want to freak him out sometimes, and he promptly texts me to stop. Because... <laughs> <laughs> What's as creepy or maybe even creepier than the image of a wolf or dog head on a human body? It's a human face on a dog body. <laughs> and so I sent the picture from the great classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This is the one with... The second one. Yes, with Donald Sutherland. Yeah. yeah, look, if you haven't... Horrible. I'm not, I'm not it's an excellent movie. It. It's a horrible effect. No, what the people who aren't turned yet, who haven't been assimilated yet, learn that if you walk around emotionless about everything, like a zombie or a robot, that you can get away with it. I can't remember who does this, but they're walking along keeping their composure until they see that the homeless man has fused with his dog and his boxer 
now has his head on it, and she shrieks in horror. And it gives them away. When I was saw it, you know, being much younger, it's the tongue coming out and looking. It's like, oh my god! It's just look. They're both disturbing images. Yeah, just the swapping of body parts. But that's a very old, you know, look at the chimera from ancient Assyria. That's not a new idea, I guess, is what I'm saying. And a hybridization of animals and humans, and animals to other animals. It's just going to happen. Hi, my name is Tyler Gordon. You're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, a quick break. Anyone who's ever been in the position of hiring somebody knows that it can be an overly complex process. It is time-consuming to set up, and in a lot of cases, difficult to monitor. You post the position you have available and fire it off out into the void without knowing if it's necessarily in all the right spots to be seen. Well, knowing where to look for the best candidate is extremely important. What you need to find the perfect hire is a way to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, with just a single click. And if you're looking for a job, it's a great place to go for that, too. You can post your resume there and sign up for alerts anytime someone views it. As an employer, you can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch qualified folks roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. It's a breeze, and like I said earlier, you don't have to deal with juggling a million emails or phone calls. You can quickly screen candidates, figure out who's best for the position, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. So, Forrest, I'm always teasing you for not having cable. <laughs> yeah. But in those two hours a week when we're not working on the show, I'm curious, what do you watch? Well, I do get over-the-air TV, and, and I have Netflix, of course. But you know what I find just as entertaining is The Great Courses Plus. And I'm actually learning things. Yeah, well, even with 500 channels, I still sometimes find there's nothing on that I want to watch. Yeah, you probably just stare at your awesome tattoo. I presume you mean the one that's the shot from uh, George Melies' A Trip to the Moon, the very first science fiction film. Right. Well, what a coincidence, because Melies figures prominently in a lecture titled The Invention of Motion Pictures from the series Turning Points in Modern History. Like how I tied that in? Very nice. Yeah, well, you probably also knew that he was a magician by trade and that he's the first one to discover what we know as special effects. Oh, that's right. I can't remember how, though. He was filming street activity in Paris in 1896 and his camera jammed for a minute, but then he got it going again. When he developed the film and watched it, a horse-drawn bus that was going by suddenly turned into a hearse because the traffic kept moving when his camera wasn't rolling. We could imagine how astonished he was because no one had ever seen anything like that before. There's something for everyone's interest with a Great Courses Plus membership, and it's not just history or science. They have thousands of lectures, including ones on mastering stage presence, the Entrepreneur's Toolkit, and How to Play Chess, which my online chess opponents would agree that I need to watch. <laughs> yeah. You can also watch these courses on any device you own, from mobile phone to tablet to streaming it on your TV. There's so much to choose from that will not only entertain you, but make you so much more interesting at parties. And now you can sample as many of these courses as you want with a month-long, unlimited, free trial membership. Start your free month now. Sign up at the Great courses plus dot com slash legends again that's the great courses plus 
com slash legends. And now back to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. All right, so just briefly, I do want to talk about the Tulpa. I don't want to go too far on this because this it is... It is its own show. Yeah, I know. Yeah. People get upset. We could say that so much. But <laughs> also, we'll be getting to this later. Yeah, we'll yeah. that a lot. <laughs> yeah. But the idea of it is a huge show. We did look into the story that Linda was talking about, and the woman whose name she was trying to recall was Alexandra David Nail, and it's spelled it's in... either Neil or Nail. Well, it's N-E-E-L, but there's an accent on the first E, so I think it's Nail or Neil. Yeah, I'll um, go with that. She went to Tibet in the 1920s, late 20s, I think, mm-hmm. at a time when it was still forbidden. And she was the one that supposedly created this tulpa there. I think she was working with someone else as well. And the tulpa they generated was in the form of – they specifically chose the form – this reminds me of the Wonder Twins. I'm not sure anybody's <laughs> holding the shape of an ice bucket. Activ- <laughs> activate. Wonder Twin powers Jaina, it's up to us to stop those aliens. They would have to touch rings. Yeah, they would touch they, rings. But they would call out the One creature. would be the animal, and the other thing would be somebody, something made of ice or water. There's another great PDF article that we'll include. It's current. I think it's from 2015. Or yeah, it's a research paper that summarizes the presence of the tulpa throughout cultures and what other things have made it more prominent. Its appearance in John Keel's book, right. The Mothman Prophecies, which right. ties into our next episode. And a little bit of a mix-up, yeah, as, as yeah. to what people think they are in its relationship to actual Tibetan ideology. Alexander David Neal, or Nail, wrote a book called Magic and Mystery in Tibet. One of my favorite quotes from it, actually, regarding the tulpa, says, mind evokes them out of the void, but can also dissolve them into the void. And I had a section here of the book that I had pulled out that I thought was a good summary, sort of, of how the idea of the tulpa works. And again, we want to remind you that this is theoretically a projection of a creature or a thing that is created from the mind of a sophisticated, highly disciplined Yes, it, it is a thought creature or thought projection, which means an individual with some adeptness and uh, higher knowledge can generate an actual being right. through thought or a group of people who are trying to purposefully or accidentally, but it's actually more connected to theosophy and the cohorts of Madame Blavatsky Yes, just after the turn of the century than it really does with Tibetan Buddhism. Yes, and theosophy was an occult sort of view of it's, knowledge and religion that pre-existed yeah. Christianity that was thought to be lost. That's what its aim is. It's a philosophy of the study of like the nature of the divine and the workings of the universe, taking a step back. And so that's kind Outside of... Outside the frameworks of Christianity, right? Yeah. Well, most religions, yeah. It's basically trying to study ancient texts and regain ancient lost knowledge to gain a better understanding of the relationship of the divine and uh, how everything works. All right, well, let me, yeah. let me read this section okay. from her book. A bodhisattva is the basis of countless magic forms. By the power generated in a state of perfect concentration of mind, he may, at one and the same time, show a phantom, tulpa, of himself and thousands, millions of worlds. He may create not only human forms, but any form he chooses— even those of inanimated objects such as hills, enclosures, houses, forests, roads, bridges, etc. He may produce atmospheric phenomena as well as the thirst-quenching beverage of immortality. The latter expression, I have been advised, 
to take in both a literal and symbolic sense. In fact, reads the conclusion, there is no limit to his power of phantom creation. The theory sanctioned in these lines by the highest authority of official Lamaism is identical with that expounded in the Mayanistic literature, where it is said that an accomplished bodhisattva is capable of affecting ten kinds of magic creations. The power of producing magic formations, tokus, or less lasting, and materialized tulpas does not, however, belong exclusively to such mystic exalted beings. Any human divine or demoniac being may be possessed of it. The only difference comes from the degree of power, and this depends on the strength of the concentration and the quality of the mind itself. The tokus of mystic entities coexist with their spiritual parent. For instance, while the Dalai Lama, who is Chenrezig's toku, lives at Lhasa, Chenrezig himself, so Tibetans believe, dwells in Nangkai Potala, an island near the Chinese coast. This is not our current Dalai Lama, but the yes. prior, because this was in the early 1900s. But my point right. is here... What they're saying is that they're believing that even the person that you're with may be a tulpa of someone else or a tulku. Well, those they're two and different the, things. Yes, yes, and the tulku is more of a congenial relationship with whoever it is that's creating it, and you can control it more, and it's an extension of someone. And the tulpa can be created sort of extraneously and can also have a mind of its own and eventually become kind of like a samurai without a master, a ronin, <laughs> oh, then it's trouble. Well, you're way afield here. I know I yeah. am. So <laughs> no, I'm, no. I, I didn't, yeah. And I said I wasn't going to go too long on this, and I think we need to do its own show yes. on all the theory of this. But Linda's point was that maybe these things that people are seeing are projections of something that is coming from the minds of others, individuals okay, yes. or groups. That goes into the whole John Keel thing that maybe some ghosts, some UFOs, are mental projections just because they're in so many people's minds. But I just want to have a little point of clarity, though, with uh, referring to that article that we mentioned, because it does kind of clear up the difference, though, and the mistaken connections between these Tibetan thoughts of the turn of the century and translations, and the, basically the dialogue between Eastern and Western philosophies here in dealing with this, that it's kind of gotten mixed up, and that the Tolka is more of connected to one of the three bodies of the Buddha, the physical manifestation here on earth to help the suffering. There's the cosmic truth body of the Buddha, there is the uh, pleasurable body, a state of being that uh, you can enjoy things, the enjoyment body. Right. And then there is, yes, the physical human manifestation so they can teach the suffering how to live better lives. That is different than the tulpa idea, and it's been kind of confluence there over the years. And so where we have it now with Western popular culture is the idea of taking this thought creation entity or being, and now you get things like Slender Man. So even though this thing is a internet phenomenon, and I think the winning entry in a contest in 2009 by Eric Knudsen for the website Something Awful, that's its origin, that so many people now have taken this thing and ran with it that it's become an actual thing itself, an entity. And then you have two little girls in Waukesha who want to prove to the world that it's real and do terrible things to their friend. Yeah. So in Western kind of philosophy, it's always going out of control. We always take the dramatic horror movie stance with this. I've created a Frankenstein, the noble savage who now doesn't understand his role and accidentally kills some people or defies its creator. 
which is not the original Tibetan thing. However, there are some common ideas in that, yes, it is a creature that the idea that thoughts are things, that right. thoughts have material, molecular weight even, and right. are actual items, and you can form them like clay. All right, and all of this brings me back to another point about Linda's book that, again, was consistent with Hunt for the Skinwalker and now numerous other stories we've come across and mentioned, including Les Stroud's Survivor Man Bigfoot series, and that's the almost omniscient ability for all of this phenomena to avoid detection by the most modern technology we have available to us. In Monsters Among Us, Linda shares a few stories about a green mist that witnesses have seen in areas of unusual events. This is like a low-lying green fog. She describes multiple encounters with this stuff from all over the world. One police officer tells a tale of being in his squad car, and when this mist that he saw got near it, although the engine didn't die, the RPM slowed to an extremely low rate, and the electronics all dimmed out, almost like it had a bad alternator, which is probably what it would have been had the mist not been present, and the car didn't resume perfect operation after it passed, which it did. Bad alternators don't get better. So <laughs> right. in the other case, you heard us talk about it in the interview, some strange kind of mist appeared in front of the trail cams in this field in Wisconsin where she'd been working with this farmer to figure out all kinds of strange happenings, including the disemboweled mutilated raccoon and these other animal mutilations, and also cases of tracks of bipedal canines completely vanishing in the snow, again, exactly like events at Skinwalker, although it wasn't yeah. bipedal, that one was a... Walked on all fours, but it was bulletproof. <laughs> well, and it disappeared. The other thing I, I was reminded of is the horrible smell. At least yes. the, the Terry Sherman blew the chunk of flesh off of it, and he said it smelled like rotting dead meat. Yeah. Anyway, this farmer that Linda was working with, he had laid the deer carcass out, which she mentioned, in front of these trail cams, trying to find out what is happening to these animals. And then the mist rolls into frame on the trail cams. It stays in the frame for quite a long time, but you don't ever see the carcass move. However, it was found a long way away. And there's never any evidence of something being in front of it. And as she mentioned in the interview, when other animals come into the frame, they're photographed. Right. Whether predator or not, they're just usually just hanging out and a picture is taken. But whatever it was that moved this deer was just this mist. So what I'm wondering is, can these fogs be some kind of representation of rifts in time or like time storms or something. Oh, hey, well, you know a little bit about the electronic fog that some aviators fly into and it screws up their Well, uh, it's another show that we were have been developing for over a year and we kind of went away from it. We need to get back to it. But what's interesting to me about this mist and the possibility of time shifting and we talk about the cameras being destroyed on Skinwalker Ranch and the Skinwalker yeah, camera post number one. In an instantaneous moment, a, a ton of damage being done. And then we have this fog that's concealing some kind of activity that's happening it made me think about what happened to pilot Bruce Gurnan in December of 1970 when he was flying from the Bahamas to Florida. He took off at 3 p.m. and he encountered some bad weather. He was going over, I think, to Bimini and then turning north. Mm -hmm. And he encountered some very bad weather. He's trying to get around these thunderheads and he can't get around this huge storm. And then he's looking at the clouds, the storms in front of him, and a tunnel yeah. opens up in the storm cloud like a portal. He's like, oh, it's a clear shot. It's a clean shot. I can see right through it. I'm going to fly into it. So he flies into it. By the way, he's got two passengers on board. Yeah. So it's three people in this plane. Flies into this tunnel, and when he gets in there, there's these lines sort of spiraling around. 
And he says it feels like it's about 10 miles long. It's either like a lenticular cloud or the laser portal from The Final Countdown. Exactly. <laughs> yes, which happens yeah. to be my seven-year-old's favorite song of all time. This is the song and then the, which and the has video. nothing to do with the uh, movie. With, yeah. um, oh, you're talking about the movie. I was talking about the movie. Oh, that's yeah. right, and the movie. I was getting the visuals mixed up between Well, that was, it was but a anyway. new technology there. No, but it's the, the same sort of portal. Countdown. Yeah, again. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why. You're right. There's no portal in that video. Right. But they go back in time. It's yeah. a U.S. aircraft carry goes back, of course, to right before the attack at Pearl Harbor. And there's the question, did, you know, along the lines of, do you kill baby Hitler? Do you right. destroy the Japanese before they can attack Pearl Harbor? The imagery is the same. The cloud formation, some kind of tunnel opens up and he knows this is not regular. Right. And so he flies the plane right into it. Yeah. And while he's in it, he gets this weird feeling of zero gravity for a few seconds. And right. then for a few more seconds, he feels like it's 10 miles long, but it's only taking 20 seconds to get through it. Then he pops out of it, but there's still this kind of mist around his plane. Now, he doesn't describe it as being green. He says there's more of like a yellowish gray to it. And during this time, Miami's control tower has lost contact with him. He pops back up on the radar. They're like, oh, we've got you now. We got you now. And he's like, you're right over Miami. And he's like, I, no, that's not possible. I was well over 100 miles away. There's no way I'm right over Miami. Mm. And what had happened was he had flown 100 miles in three minutes. He would have had to been going 1,950 miles an hour. That's right? not possible in a Cessna, right? No, okay. not possible. It would come apart at the seams, and also yeah. it doesn't have the thrust ability. So, so what you're saying, though, is that it not only was just time that was affected, but distance. Yes. Okay. And he's also flying in the Bermuda Triangle, now, by the way. Well, there you go. Hey, is that how the aliens get here from other galaxies I don't know. So fast? I don't know. Yeah. I'm just saying it's interesting. It seems to be, as you said, when it goes to experience and we're putting all these stories together from all over the place and all over, the more you get into your repertoire, the more you yeah. start to see these common ground. And part of the common ground that I'm seeing between the green mist and this, this fog and these possibility of time shifts and not seeing things and, and then going back to Bruce Gernon's experience, which we hope to cover in uh, the early part of 2017, all of it seems somehow connected. There's the mist. I don't know where uh, Stephen King got that for the movie, but that's what happens. They open the portal, mist comes out, and a lot of bad, funky purple creatures that yeah. get kill people. So there's something, though, about if we can take these little anecdotes as clues or trying to piece together a larger paranormal puzzle. What is the purpose of the mist? Is it something, is it a cloaking aspect that Linda talks about? Like a squid ejecting ink yeah. to cloak itself. Yeah. Or a chameleon changing its spots. Or the predator screwing up the image a little bit just so it's harder for him to be seen. Right. Or is it just a byproduct of them being here somewhere that Or how not... they got here. Exactly. Yeah. If you were to take these elements as true, suspend your disbelief for a little bit here, I would say at Camera Post, number one, at Skinwalker Ranch, when the destruction happened, that seemed purposeful and in a way of messing with you. But the aspect that it's done instantaneously seems more like a byproduct of that type of supernatural action. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The 60-pound deer carcass that was left in the field, not being seen on camera as being moved or messed with or being picked up by anything... I'm not sure that that sounds to me like that's being purposefully cloaked. That might be just an aspect of this type of action. Right. That's what you wonder, is that, is this part of the prank? Whatever the nature of these uh, creatures are, is that, like you said, is it willingly not trying to end up on camera of any kind? 
And it is one of the elemental forces of the universe, the electromagnetic force, along with the weak, strong, and uh, the other two. No, the, other, <laughs> no, the other one. I'm not a scientist. The electromagnetic force, along with gravity, is one of the four forces of the grand unified theory. So it's an elemental force that allows you to screw up all kinds of electronics and compasses and anything that has to do with magnetism. There so, you go. There you go. Okay, before we wrap up... There's a lot of great stories in here, and different stories are going to appeal to different people. That's why it's a great book to get. There's something for everyone. There really is. And, and again, I just want to reiterate, we're looking at Monsters Among Us, an exploration of otherworldly Bigfoots, Wolfmen, Portals, Phantoms, and Odd Phenomena by Linda Godfrey, which comes out October 11th. And there was one story that just really struck a chord with me to the extent that I'm going to read it here with Linda's permission. I asked her if I could do this when mm -hmm. I talked to her, and she said it was fine. It's going to bother me so much that when it's 11 p.m. and Ooh. when we wrap up, Close to the witching I'm, hour. and I'm going to go in here to go yeah. to bed in a little bit, I'm going to be staring at the ceiling. Okay. <laughs> your son's going to have to come in and comfort you this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I had to comfort him last night because of a one spooky character and a shot of 50 million <laughs> spooky characters in yeah. Goosebumps, which we watched oh, together last night. That's funny. A great movie, by the way, the Jack Black version of Goosebumps. It's a really good movie. All right. This is from Linda's book. It's called The Brunswick Wolf Shadow. It's uh, chapter 14. One such encounter took place in summer 1969 in Brunswick, Ohio, when two brothers, ages five and eight, their three sisters, then a nine-year-old and a pair of 11-year-old twins, and their grandmother found terror in their backyard. Their relative, Julie, wrote me in October 2012 and said the entire family group saw what one aunt described as a wolf shadow walking out of the garden. The story goes they saw it walking, only it was two-dimensional, she said. It looked like a black cardboard cutout that moved, but they could make out distinct features like a snout, pointy ears, bushy fur, and what my aunt says stuck out the most, a thick arched neck similar to that of a horse. She says it turned to look at them, and when it did, it looked like what a piece of cardboard would look like, thin. When it finished turning, it looked flat again, except they could tell it was facing them. They couldn't see eyes or a snout, but the ears were clearly seen, and they knew it was watching them. They all started screaming, and our grandma came out to see what was going on. She went back and got a broom and started after it with the kids running after her. My aunt said it came out of the cornfield and ran towards the woods. She said it looked like a piece of paper running. It ran with a sort of a hop on the balls of its feet. Not like a human would run. It had legs similar to a dog. It turned back once with the same two-dimensional paper effect, ran into the woods behind a tree, and it was gone. Julie, who had heard the story secondhand from her aunt and stepfather, added that they estimated it had to have been seven feet tall, based on its height above the corn. The only thing I can say to this story is, what? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> well, it turned it, sideways and it was a piece of paper. Well, it can only afford the two dimensions. I just can't this. <laughs> wrap my head around this. Yeah. And it reminds me of that other story of the thing crossing the road that looked like a horse on a carousel, which I like a we, hobby horse. Oh, the the movement, yes. Yeah, the yeah. movement looked like a hobby horse, which then, of course, takes me to um, – I'm just going to go ahead and paint all the scenes that are going to wind up in a nightmare for me about four hours from now. <laughs> it's going to end with the yeah. Dick Van Dyke with the carousel thing coming apart and Mary Poppins. Yeah. It just 
the two-dimensional part of this also reminds me of Inside Out when they walk through the room where they like devolve into the abstract world or something. Oh, I don't, I don't yes. know if you've seen that movie. Yeah. I yeah. saw it. I can't see it again. I cried like a baby oh. in one scene. My son, my seven-year-old, was consoling me. <laughs> you um, have to nest to do that, apparently. <laughs> no, but, no, there's another story about a whole family seeing a wolfman-like creature at night outside in their backyard. And similar setup there, the whole family sees it. But what's distinctive, and this one's in East Arkansas. So this kind of phenomenon happens all over the United States. Yeah. And I'm going to guess in a large part of the world, it's not two-dimensional. That's what makes this story unique yeah. uh, to me. I've not really heard of that. But, you know, if you wonder what's going on here, is it something about our sight? Like the British soldier. Right. Or is it something... He's making reference to the Laughing Indian episode. Yes, that's Can't right. I can't actually remember these episodes. But. <laughs> I remember the aspects of these, which is, it's all about seeing. You can't look directly this, at it. Yeah, but it's always, the in the, it's always in the periphery of your vision right. with his mom. Wherever she looked, this kind of this image would happen. Even going back to Marty and the Queen Mary, where he sees John Neville <laughs> yes. as Baron Munchausen standing in his room, yeah. there's something about seeing, and he knew that if he looked away, it would disappear. So there yeah. is an aspect about seeing that is involved in all of this kind of paranormal phenomenon, I believe, or is it that this is a condition of this thing really entering our world when it's not supposed to be? Right. And that is the question that I have. Because again, when we look at the descriptions of the portals that we've come across, you can only see them squarely when you're facing the open end of them. But the minute you move off that angle, or let's say you're perpendicular to them, they're not there. And it's not because they're camouflaged necessarily. It's because they are planar on that one angle. If you come off the front of it by 90 degrees, it's planar. It's a single line. When you're right in front of it, it looks like a tube with a giant hairy monster with no face crawling out of it. Yeah, exactly. So what is is that? And this (laughs) this thing turned and looked at him and it was a line. And this, by the way, reminds me of something my son said once during, there's a very old Star Trek where there's a woman and she has to say, I must touch Kirk. She has to touch them. And then whenever she gets in trouble, they confront her. They have to block whoever she's come for. And then she turns into a line and disappears. And I remember I was watching that with my son, Rowan. This was about two years ago. And he goes, she became a straight line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's he's just learning about geometry. I'll never forget that. But like this wolf man became a straight line. I just, I can't handle it. But here's what I love about these head scratchers and and mind-blowing stories is that uh, on the higher levels of human thought, then you start mixing physics and astrophysics with philosophy. And I believe Chris Cogswell on the art loves that too. Thomas Fusco is an astrophysicist and a philosopher as well. The two are go hand in hand. I know they seem like disparate topics, subjects, but really you start to wonder about the nature of reality. And it's like thinking about a point in space. What is the point? Is it like a really little tiny baseball that's uh, or a ping pong ball that's just hanging in space It's really, in a lot of aspects, it's theoretical. It's numeric. So you have these joining kind of things going on, and it's really hard to wrap your head around. All right. Well, we'd like to thank Linda Godfrey for coming on the show to talk to you guys about her new book, Monsters Among Us, an exploration of otherworldly Bigfoots, Wolfmen, Portals, Phantoms, and Odd Phenomena. It goes on sale October 11th of this year, and you can pre-order it now at her website, lindagodfrey.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-G-O-D-F-R-E-Y.com, where she also has a blog. 
Additionally, you can follow her on Facebook and remember that she's appearing at the Milwaukee Paracon on October 15th, just 10 days after this show drops, where her tulpa will be signing copies of her book. <laughs> no, wait, I'm sorry. That was a mistake. It's actually uh, going to be her in person. Nice. <laughs> not a her thought actual, projection. Not her. a thought projection. Oh, okay. I bet you she can actually do it. Okay, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's episode. We're headed into a dark week sooner than usual so we can prepare for our special Halloween series. That's right. We'll be back on October 19th with the first of a multi-part series on the Mothman. A giant winged beast with glowing red eyes that terrorized the small town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia in December 1967, just prior to a catastrophic event that took the lives of 46 people. We'd like to thank Squarespace, Movement Watches, ZipRecruiter, and The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring us. Please remember that supporting our sponsors through their exclusive offers for you guys goes a long way towards supporting the show, and we really appreciate it. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Good night.